With the sports world on pause, we've teamed Greg Linelli and Eric Erlinson together for Power Lunch, an hour to talk lightning hockey, the NHL, and how you're coping with the coronavirus. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play via the iHeartRadio app. Center point headman, right to go Kudrop. Oh boy, oh boy, I can't wait for that to be real life, hopefully sooner rather than later. Don't know when hockey will resume, but when it does, you can bet that Lightning Power Play is going to be all over it, and we will be your home for the most complete Lightning coverage. What will become the new norm of hockey games once play resumes, and should an asterisk be put next to the team who wins the cup? We've touched on this before throughout, but... It's kind of heated up in the last couple of days. I want to get your thoughts. Ian, I do. Matt Larkin from the Hockey News will be joining us coming up in about 15 minutes. You know my question I want to ask Matt, in addition to how's his hair holding up, not being able to go to the barbershop, he has a great uh, piece of hair, and I want to know how it's going right now for him during this time, because as we know, um, if you cut hair for a living, it's dicey right now to open up business here in the States. I'm curious as to what it's like in Canada. Probably the same deal. Uh, e, let me bring you in. Uh, Disneyland is set to reopen, but not here in the States. We That's saw some small businesses um, getting pounded a little bit more. Recent job and unemployment A report came out. I want to share that with everybody because there are a ton of people, again, as we've talked about on this show, who are hurting. And it is a Wednesday, so we've got a lot to cover on today's show, and I hope everybody is doing well. I had to ask you, E, and let me bring in, good to be with you. I I, I forgot what day it was. You said it was hump day, and I said, really? All right. (laughs) Good stuff. That's... What are we eight eight weeks into uh, into this situation? Yeah. It's uh, look, it's easy. Like I, you know, I I actually reached out to somebody the other day, and I have something that they want to pick up from my house, and uh, he said, "What's a good day?" I said, "Look, it's all Groundhog Day. Doesn't matter." <laughs> it's like so. I, yeah, it's easy to lose track of what what days it happens to be on on the week schedule. Um, I guess the only thing that's uh, noticeable to us is when the weekends come around because, uh, you know, we don't have shows on Saturday or Sunday. So we just have to be ready those other five days a week, whatever they happen to be. Well, luckily, you and I have been able to get together on the weekends because we do the intermission reports while we're running the yep. playoff games of yesterday, 2016 currently. Game five, by the way, will be tomorrow night on Lightning Power Play and 95.3 WDA starting at 7. We invite you to listen to that. Ian and I do the intermission reports just like we would do a regular season game um, when things were back to normal. We take your questions, and um, it's always fun doing that, E, going down memory lane. I did that uh, last night with Brian Engblom. Of course, Brian comes very well prepared, as do you, when we do those hits, and he goes, it's just amazing looking back at some of the players that had to step up. And, you know, we talked about the Jonathan Druin scenario. What a what a wild ride it was for him in 2016, going from a guy who wanted to be traded to somebody that they really had to rely on in the playoffs. And he ended up being almost a point-per-game guy, and that was always fun. Alex Kalorn continues to emerge as a big-game player, as does Ben Bishop, and a, a team that was uh, – couple of games short in 2015 winning the Stanley Cup came within a game of getting back there. And I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that the Lightning have been really, really close 
during this time, these last you know four or five years of at least getting back to the cup, and it is the hardest championship I think to win, and certainly I think the Lightning know that better than anybody. For sure, and and I have to kind of correct people as best I can when they say, well, the Lightning never had playoff success. They have. They've had a lot of playoff success. They just not have reached the pinnacle. They have not been able to get to the top of the mountain, but they've been as high as anybody can be uh, and, and just get so tantalizingly close to reaching that goal. And as we go back and replay these games and relive some of these memories, uh, it is a, it is really kind of puts it in perspective on how good this team has been since 2015. And there was the hiccup in 17 where they just missed out on the playoffs, but that allowed a guy like Braden Point to emerge. So there was definitely a lot to take out of that season in particular. Uh, but, yeah, this team has had a lot of success in the last five years. Um, I think it's frustrated some fans because twice they've had a 3-2 lead in the conference final, weren't able to finish the job. They had, of course, a 2-1 lead in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, were not able to hold on to that lead, ended up losing that series in six the first time all year. They lost three straight games in that 15 season. So they certainly have had many, many opportunities, and it just reminds us on how good the team has been. And by the way, as I see this come through my timeline, today is the day in 2015 that Tyler Johnson scored with 1.1 second left on the clock to beat Montreal in Game 3 wow. to put the Lightning up 3-0 in that series. So, yeah, um, yeah lot, lot, a lot of success, uh, and we hope that uh, whenever this 19-20 season finds some conclusion that they're right there in the mix again. You know, I, I often reflect back on this, and if you want to get involved in the conversation, please do, at Bolts Radio, at Greg Winelli, at Eric underscore Erlinson. Eric spelled at the end there with a K, folks, not a C. So make sure you get it right. Come on. Um, which... They're obviously all these playoff losses are disappointing. Probably no more than the one we saw last year against Columbus. Let's take that aside and step that um, to the side here. I'm curious for you when you look at the Pittsburgh series in 2016, where the, when the Lightning were up three-two and lose in seven, or the Washington series, same scenario. Which one do you think was more gut-wrenching, and which one do you felt like they really let slip away? Because both of those teams, I have to remind people on this too, went on to win the Cup. And I think you could have made a strong case that had Tampa Bay powered through against Pittsburgh or Washington in those series, that they at least have one Stanley Cup. I think that's probably fun to, to break down. We'll never know, obviously. But was there which one do you think they had a, a bigger issue with? Sleeping at night, e losing, uh, you know, three games to two lead in the Eastern Conference Final, the Pittsburgh series or the Washington series. Ooh, that's um. I thought Pittsburgh, from start to finish, was the better team. Yep. The way they dictated play, I thought Vasilevsky was outstanding and was the best goaltender in that series. But I, I just thought, even though Tampa Bay was opportunistic, that they were probably fortunate that went seven because. You give Pittsburgh that many opportunities like they had in that seven-game series, eventually talent was going to win out, and they had enough firepower to do just that. I don't think we envisioned Brian Rust defeating and, and getting two goals past Vasilevsky in Game 7, but so be it. Uh, my gut tells me it was the Washington series because you were shut out a, a couple of games there at the end that... I know a lot of people talked about Washington imposing their will physically, and that's really what turned the tide. And that may be true, but you'd like to have thought 
that uh, Tampa Bay would have been able to sneak out one of those games down or up 3-2. Yeah, I, I think the Washington one leaves more of a bitter taste in their mouth, you know, because of being shut out in the final two games and, you know, the first time that Capitals group had been past the second round in the Alex Ovechkin era. You know, they didn't take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, but I, I think I think the Pittsburgh one is the one that got away. And I agree with you. Pittsburgh was the better team in that series yeah. because they were so relentless in their puck pursuit, and they were really in the face of, of everybody, That especially the, you know, the latter stages of that regular season and all the way through the playoffs. I've never seen a team be as aggressive uh, in puck pursuit as the Penguins were, and it takes a, a good, hard-working, uh, in-shape team to be able to do that, especially at that point in the season. But you look at Matt Murray's stats – and the fact that they couldn't get more opportunities on Matt Murray, I, I, I believe, didn't he have a, I think he had a sub 900 save percentage in that series. And the Lightning just couldn't penetrate enough into into the, the Pittsburgh defense to get more opportunities. I think that they could have created some more opportunities. They probably win that series. And then you take the fact that they did have a 3-2 lead. You got a fortunate goal in Game 5 where Jason Garrison shot, but literally goes off Tyler Johnson's backside yeah. and into the net to win that game in Game 5. And then you take a lead in Game 6, and then you have it overturned on a, a video review call. It's a good point. Um, you know, the offsides, that's why I think yeah, that's the one point. that got away from them a little bit more than the Washington series because Washington, their determination level at the latter half of that, that series certainly ramped it up, and Tampa Bay wasn't able to match that or reach that level, and the physicality is part of it. But so, you know, so is Alex Ovechkin bombing a shot four minutes into Game 7 from long range that beats Andre Vasilevsky. I mean, that's determination uh, as well. But I, I think as you look back, I think the Washington one was a more bittersweet loss and left a, a more of a sour taste in a lot of people's mouths, including the players and especially the fans. But I think the Pittsburgh one is the one that got away from them. And it's interesting about the Washington series because a lot of people that maybe cover the team or are executives within the organization, they may tell you privately that's where after that series the mindset needed to be a bit different in terms of how they were going to play, how they were going to win in the playoffs, and maybe the type of players they needed to bring in to be physical during that time. Because as we know, maybe Columbus was – the final straw. But I think there were a lot of people that felt like even after that Washington series, the Tampa Bay needed to get a little tougher. Yeah. And I think what we've seen, and we had this conversation a lot last year, and I know I talked a lot about it on my show is that where are we in transition of how the game is going to be played? Because teams like Tampa Bay and Toronto are built on speed and skill. Not necessarily size, speed and skill. They want to play a fast-paced game, you know, create chances more off the rush than probably we've seen teams in the last 10 years or so. They want to create off the rush. Uh, how are those teams going to have success? And I think what happened last year with Columbus was just that. They, they had the team built for size or for speed uh, and skill, and it just it didn't translate because, as we all know, and we've had this conversation many times about how different the game is played and how different it looks once the calendar turns to April and teams start competing for the Cup, stuff that teams can get away with maybe they couldn't get away with in the regular season. So the game changes just enough. So I think that last year against Columbus uh, and, and going back even to Washington kind of gave uh, the lightning brass the idea that, okay, 
this we have to find more of a hybrid way because you still have the speed and you still have the skill. You have the Braden Points and the Nikita Kucherovs and Tyler Johnsons and Yanni Gords and uh, you know all these players that that epitomize exactly what the Lightning want in their skill set, but they need a little more. And that's where a, a Blake Coleman, and you heard this a lot from Julian Breezebois this year, both when Coleman was acquired and when Barclay Goodrow was acquired. Relentlessness, hard to play against, pest, that type of a player that can just be in your face, and not necessarily a physical way, but just be in your face. And I think that's where some of the, the philosophical shift happened this year with the Lightning front office when it comes to what type of a roster they wanted going to the playoffs rather than be in one set area to sort of round it out a little bit and give you more balance and different types of looks you can give a team. Well, and the other thing, too, is those players that you just announced, maybe outside of Bogosian, who they brought in during the, uh, the trade deadline, they can skate. Yeah. So maybe Pat Maroon and Luke Shen were the exception. You know, Luke Shen finds himself on the outside looking in, more of a depth piece. Pat Maroon, obviously a fixture on the fourth line, addresses that physical nature who also has some hands in tight that can play. But you're not asking him to play 15 minutes a night. But Coleman and Goodrow are guys who are physical, can skate, and can do some things maybe that they didn't have even just a year ago. So uh, it's interesting to see the changes to this roster. Maybe they're subtle changes. Maybe they're bigger changes. And it's going to be interesting to see if and when play does resume how those players mesh a little bit more. Because I think we would all agree. I think Goudreau was was starting to fit in a little bit more than Coleman. And Coleman, I think, still, E, before we go to break and get to Matt Larkin, still, I think, finding out where he fit in with this team. Was it top six? Was it top nine? And where does exactly Blake Coleman fit in with this team? Yeah, that needs to be sorted out. And, you know, we talked yeah. about some of the issues that was going on with Blake Coleman, you know, disrupt, literally disrupting his life. He wasn't expected to be traded. His wife was about yeah. to give a baby, about to have a baby a, a week before the trade was uh, took place. So his his entire life was up, uh, overturned, and, and he's in a new place and trying to find – with everything going on, I, I think that really affected him. We, we kind of don't talk about that much. Why isn't this player produced? And I've seen nothing out of him. I've, I saw some of those comments uh, when the team was still playing. So I think that's going to be sorted out. And then I look at the Boston game right before the pause, the Saturday before the pause hit, and how that game transpired and the way that Barclay Goodrow was right in the middle of all of it. That yeah. was his sort of welcome to the team moment, and you knew what he could do, what he could bring, you know, what elements of, of his game were there. I thought that that really brought him in uh, to the mix, and that's important. You know, I, I remember when Rob DeMaio came here after the Lightning won the Cup in 4 5 and I remember asking him, I said, this is a pretty easy team to fit into, right? And then Rob DeMaio was a veteran. He'd been around a while, and he said, you know what? It's really not because these guys have been together. They've been through a lot together. Obviously, a lot of them have won the Cup. That changes things a little bit. So I, it's the same way when, when players come into a group like Tampa Bay with the Johnsons, Palats, Kucherov, Stamkos, Hedmans, players yeah. that have been here for five, six years and have been through all these ups and downs that we just talked about. It takes a little bit for them to find their role, to find their voice, to step in. You know, a guy like Pat Maroon is, a, is a, an exception because he had just won a Cup, and he's got that really huge personality uh, within the locker room. He was able to really kind of fit in, but it really even took him till what was that game in St. Louis they lost, right, when he went back to St. Louis, and mm -hmm. that's where you felt he kind of took a leadership role. So it takes a little bit for some of these players to come in in what is really a tight-knit room. They have to find their niche, and it's not always easy. 
What is the new norm once play resumes? And if it was up to Matt Larkin, would he keep the NHL locked down until January? We'll talk to him about those issues and so much more. He's Eric Erlinson. I am Greg Linnelli. Glad you're with us here on a Wednesday. I think it's a Wednesday. Back after this, it's the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. The hockey world might be on pause, but Eric Erlinson and Greg Linnelli aren't. This is Power Lunch, exclusively on Lightning Power Play on the iHeartRadio app. All right. We're back here on the Power Lunch. Glad you're with us on a Wednesday. By the way, I retweeted this out um, before we bring in our good friend Matt Larkin. I want to get Matt's thoughts on this. You were an MTV guy, right? Uh, that's my generation. Right. Did you know I'm that old. Kurt, Kurt Loder turned 75 the other day? <laughs> I, I saw that come across, and I, I will not lie. That 75! And, and, it, and it hurts a little bit, too, when I, I can turn on Sirius XM and they have a lot of those uh, VJs on the 80s at 8 channel, which I do tune into every now and then. My and goodness. then you hear Alan Hunter and Nina Blackwood and Martha Quinn. Uh, yeah, I, I remember all those VJs quite well. And uh, uh. Hear them. they still sound the same, but I've seen pictures of them. They do not look the yeah, same. No doubt. And look, that's when I, I mean, and part of that is because in my youth. Now, look. You've got about 30 years on me, uh, age-wise, but yep. um, no, nah, I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> I mean, that's when I watched MTV. Now, you know, Beavis and Butthead, whatever, but that's when music videos were popular, and you would, you know, associate the the artists with the actual videos, and now it's just, you know, garbage, but um, I could not believe that. I had to do a double take. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's what's what's the old seven saying? Never, never meet your heroes. Not that Carlota yeah. was a hero of mine, but no. uh, never meet your original VJs uh, from back in the day when yeah. videos actually mattered on MTV. Well, let's bring in our good friend from the hockey news, and um, always good to catch up with Matt Larkin. He is um, at home, resting comfortably with his family. And uh, Matt, hope all is well with you, buddy. And how's the hair? For you, because this has got to be tough with not being able to go get your hair cut. Um, have you just shaved it like I have, or what have you done? I, I could never shave. For me, shaving my hair would be like taking Captain America's shield away. That's all I've got <laughs> at this point. That's all I've got to hold on to. But I was very lucky. I got a haircut on March 6th, just before wow. things went into lockdown. I got a really good haircut. I got to shout out my man, Gus. He's a rec league goalie. Gus. He did a great job. And the haircut was built to age, so I'm not in horrible shape in the hair department. I did have a okay. mustache, a really good, Ooh. you know, Wade Boggs-inspired mustache for about 50 days, but I just My got goodness. rid of it. Wow. Uh, decided to show show some mercy toward my wife. We need to see some pictures there. We need to see what some the, pictures. What do the kids say? If picture, if pictures or it didn't happen? <laughs> exactly. Although the it's pictures are out there, you. they're out there. Just we got Zoom recordings of our podcast, and I, I can't hide that thing. It's out there now for public <laughs> consumption. Um, Matt, I, I want to ask you. Um, we've heard about the you know the the pods or whatever of division based at least trying to make a division based and Toronto has emerged as uh, looks like the leader in the Atlantic division to maybe host some some games up there uh, what what's kind of new on that front and and how would that work in a city of Toronto size 
I mean, what's new is that nothing's officially new. And I find, uh, I don't know about you guys, but anytime I've knocked on a door this week, everyone's extremely evasive, whether it's teams, whether it's people from the NHL, GMs. Uh, no one wants to commit because it seems like everything's so fluid that the ideas keep changing. We're only a couple weeks removed from, you know, New Hampshire and North Dakota hosting neutral site games. That was supposedly going to be the plan. That's already changed. Uh, but in terms of venues, I think Toronto does work. The, the most important thing is, uh, from what I, my understanding is, is, is the facility equipped? Basically, is it equipped for basketball and hockey? Because you want to have four dressing rooms to work work with. If you're sort of doing the Olympic-style format where you're having a bunch of teams play on the same day, you need to be able to have certain rooms being sanitized while other other rooms are in use. So a, a big facility like Scotiabank Arena theoretically should be able to accommodate that. And we know it's already hosted a large-scale event uh, in the World Cup, right? And, of course, also the World Juniors. But I think the World Cup, in terms of how it was staged – is a pretty good dry run, and that was a very successful event in terms of how it went down to Toronto. Matt, I want to ask you out of the gate, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like I saw one of your tweets. Might have been a month ago. Might have been two weeks ago. I, I, I can't recall, so I apologize from that standpoint. Are, are you of the opinion that let's just forget about this year and focus on next year and if that's the case, how would that look like in your eyes? And if it's not the case, how do you see this all playing out right now? Well, my opinion, it is a little out there, but it's not about scrapping the season per se. It's about shortening the season. So I've been more of a proponent of the ideas of the play in tournaments, whether it's 22, 24. That's obviously debatable because 24, it's much cleaner, but it brings in a couple teams people think might not be deserving. But my reasoning for skipping ahead to that play-in tournament is, you know, if you think about how, how long are these training camps going to have to last before players get back in shape, exhibition game schedules, if you're finishing the regular season, that's at least another month. So if you combine the two, training camp, exhibition, regular season, that's probably two months of play before we even get to the playoffs. And if the regular season resumption doesn't start till let's say, July 1st, we're not starting the playoffs till September. And then we're really squeezing things in terms of next season. The NHL has maintained it's a big priority to not jeopardize or damage uh, next season. So, of course, it's not perfect. There's no perfect solution. But in my opinion, a playing tournament, it would be unprecedented. Uh, and I think it would generate a lot of excitement. It would be like nothing you've ever seen. I don't think that's a bad thing coming back. Kind of like, you know, after the, the, the full year missed of hockey in 0405. You came back in 05 and 06 with, you know, such a new landscape with a big change, the obstruction crackdown, bringing in shootouts, and everything felt fresh and different and exciting. And I think a playing tournament would be a really uh, just thrilling way to bring hockey back. Because even if we resume the regular season, no one's going to con consider the season to be a normal one anyway. So why not have fun with it? Uh, and in this scenario as well, uh, if you do a playing tournament, then you're reducing the number of players that have to leave their families. And I sort of feel for guys on the teams that are way out of contention uh, and they would just be leaving their families for a month or you know maybe longer just to play out a, a schedule that's somewhat meaningless for them uh, so I think this would be to me more of a compromise solution doesn't look like that's going to be the way it plays out the NHL seems to be leaning toward wanting to finish out that season though well I, I find that interesting in two aspects first of all um, you know, there are economical impacts of teams that finish their season because of TV sponsorships and, and ads that have to be, you know, are prepaid for and they have to be doled out. So I think there's that aspect of it. Uh, but, but the other part is, uh, you know, the, the players that are on these teams that don't really have any chance. I mean, what's the motivation for Detroit? What's the mo We already heard Drew Doughty. What's Drew Doughty's motivation to come back and play? What kind of, of hockey 
would that look like for those teams? But I think the flip side of that, with the play-in tournament because or some sort of play-in situation, the competitive juices are going to be going right from the start. I think the quality of hockey, even though teams have been away from the ice, especially for a, a little bit of a, a longer period of time than they're used to, um, the competitive juices would be there right from the start. It would be so evident in teams that have something to play for and teams that don't have anything to play for. I'm, I'm kind of with you. I don't think that those teams have any motivation to come back and play because the players are just not going to be into it if they have nothing to play for. They don't care about lottery picks. Yeah, 100%. And I think even teams that were positioned pretty well in terms of a tank, they're probably not going to want to mess with their spot. You know, the Ottawa Senators, they don't want to go on a winning streak, and they don't want San Jose yeah. to go on a winning streak. The Senators are set up amazingly well. I think if you're looking at the bottom-dweller teams, the only players that might have some motivation are guys that are in contract years trying to puff up their stats. I can see that if you're someone who's had a bad year and it's a contract year, you're really trying to make an impact in the final stretch of the season, fair enough. But otherwise, I totally agree with you. Matt Larkin joining us from the Hockey News here on Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. Greg Linnelli along with Eric Carlinson. Matt, what is a bigger deal, you think, for the players at this point? It's one of the questions Eric and I have talked about uh, since this all went down. Is it not being on the ice for an extended period of time and then kind of ramping back up? Or is it playing with the possibility that you could get the coronavirus? I think, you know, to me, from what I've seen from players, heard from players, one of the biggest concerns, it, it might be neither. I, I think the players are extremely concerned about what's going to happen to their bodies if they have to play a lot of hockey in the next 365 days or, or the 365 day period starting in July. Uh, because the, the condensed schedule finishing a season, if the NHL decides to, and this is again, this is why I'm sort of against the idea of fully resuming the regular season. It's going to push the entire 2019-20 season deep into the fall, probably November. And if the NHL wanted to resume the, or start the next season by December or January, it's been hinted December, that's a really short off season for the players. And I think a lot of guys, especially the veterans, are, are pretty concerned about that. To me, that's been one of the most common concerns I've heard expressed. Uh, and also just, you know, these are a lot of these guys are family guys. A lot of the veteran players are particularly concerned about being away from their families. Uh, and I think that's topping a lot of guys' lists as well. Uh, and in terms of the actual on-ice play, I think it was Braden Holtby, if I'm not mistaken. It happened on the, the call uh, that had multiple goalies on it. We're talking about their rhythm is probably the most affected by the layoff right now. Because when you're a goalie, it's like you can't – it's not like you are you can go to a batting cage and have pucks just automatically shot at you by a robot in the same way that a hitter could. Like A goalie needs another human, I think, for the unpredictability, shooting and everything to get your timing right to have pucks shot at you. Uh, and unless you happen to be a goalie that has a really good hockey playing, you know, child or relative, hmm. it's pretty hard to train. Uh, so I, I think that in terms of the on ice stuff, the goalies are the most concerned from what I've seen. But in terms of just, you know, the longer the layoff is, the more likely we're going to see rusty goalies. I don't think from an entertainment perspective, it's not it's necessarily a bad thing. It could mean more goals and more fun. 1980s playoff hockey, that's what we would get. We would get, uh, you know, the 6-5 games on a regular basis instead of some of these 2-1 games <laughs> that we've come to know over the last uh, the last couple of years. Um, Matt, with, you, you know, we mentioned coming back from 0405, some of the rule changes. 
how how much and it hasn't really been talked about so i don't even know if it's, if it's a possibility but have has this allowed an opportunity to kind of re-examine things as well maybe change a few things maybe maybe take the trapezoid back out i know there's been some talk about possibly doing that or if you start the season in november could that become the new norm for the nhl we know teams don't necessarily like to even start in october because of uh, especially in in the united states trying to deal with nfl uh, just kicking off a month into their season uh, when the nhl gets started so just some ways to kind of think outside the box of something that might be a new norm uh, from a, the way the league does its business uh, starting maybe as soon as next year and, and continuing that rather than just being a one-year thing. I think it's a great question. I personally don't think it's going to come to the forefront unless the season's canceled. If we know we're looking at a guaranteed long layoff, that's the time for reflection. Uh, and it, I think that was more the case in 0405. You had the big summit, the Shanahan summit, right, where you kind of had the competition committee going through all the changes in the game. I don't think we're at that point yet because the NHL is just working 24-7, talking to the Board of Governors, trying to figure out all the safety scenarios, the quarantine scenarios, and you know what's the proper medical advice. They're so buried in that right now. I don't think they're thinking ahead to wholesale changes to the game. Uh, but if we reach a point where you know hockey's not going to happen, then yes, I do think that we could see some reevaluation. I'm a guy, I would like to see you know crazy things like offside taken completely out of the game. I don't think we're at that point, but that's just an example of, you know, if we were Somewhere looking to Pablo really Burry change nods, things, yes. Yeah, exactly. You know, coming out with momentum. Uh, in terms of the, the schedule, I think it's what's more likely to happen if we were ever going to see a change in schedule would be uh, just seeing, you know, the flow of a shortened season. Uh, if next season ends up being shortened, if it's, let's say it becomes a 70-game season, and if that improves the quality of hockey, which a lot of people said about 94, 95, and 2012-13, we could look at the idea of a, of a shorter schedule. Uh, and I think a shorter schedule could mean... Uh, finishing the season earlier as opposed to starting it later. I think the more common complaint in hockey is that people don't want to be watching hockey in June anymore. A season that could end in, in May, I think, could be the solution. Matt Larkin from the Hockey News joins us here on the Power Lunch. Greg Winelli along with Eric Rollins and Steve Ersnick producing. Uh, Matt, when you look at the league and where it is right now, uh, outside of kind of the scenario you brought up that you'd like to see happen, is there a decision that could be made that would be completely disastrous? I think everybody understands the, the league is, I don't want to say throwing stuff against the wall and seeing if it sticks. This is unprecedented times. I'm not sure there's a playbook for something like this, how to deal with the coronavirus when you're running a sports league. But do you think there's any decisions that the league could make that would be absolutely disastrous moving forward? Yeah, and I think, you know, maybe I'm being too simple in, in, ter in terms of the way I'm thinking here, but the, the most dangerous thing to do is to come back too early. And somebody gets infected and something happens like what we saw in the NBA. That was kind of selling itself out to try and get people back on the ice quicker because they want those TV revenues. Uh, I think that is the number one risk. And that's why, you know, and I, and I said this, I wrote about this, when Trump had his sort of summit with all the different commissioners of different sports and he talked about wanting to see fans in, in stands by the summer and everything, I kind of wanted to pump the brakes there and say, listen, we have to wait until the world health officials give the, the true okay. And I, I think so far, especially, you know, guys like Bill Daly, Gary Bettman, they're pretty pragmatic when it comes to this stuff pretty good confidence that the NHL is not going to rush people back, but that would be the worst case scenario. If there's an outbreak, and I think more so than most sports, just the nature of a hockey team, it's a, it's a contact sport and you're in close proximity to each other at all times. It's like the, the level of contact of a football game, except you're not outside, you're indoors for the duration of the game and the germs are sort of held a lot closer together. So I think hockey's 
at the very top of the list in terms of sports that are the highest risk of passing an infection on. So you have to be extremely careful relative to, I think, almost any other sport. Matt Larkin from the Hockey News joins us here on Power Lunch. And Matt, a lot of talk about the draft. We thought we might have had some news yesterday when the league might do it. Now it might be the end of this week. It might be next week. But it seems as if there's a lot of momentum pushing this to happen next month. Do, do you get that feeling? And there's a lot of concerns from GMs. Where do you sit in terms of thinking about how a June draft might look, might play out, and how especially lottery teams uh, involved in this with the, no conclusion to the season, totally way off the charts of what we would thought was going to be the case? I think you're right. I think there's a ton of momentum to it, and I think it's telling that it's still being tabled right now, even though if you look, I think it was a story from Pierre Lebrun, uh, the vote from several GMs, or, or from all, almost every GM, there's, there are a few that abstain, but the, the vast majority of the voters are not in favor of it. And I think there are just so many pitfalls. Uh, the most common, the most obvious one being all the conditional draft picks, and the NHL sort of indicated that it would have to help, it would step in and try and help teams sort through their own trades. And I think that we'd see a lot of picks being deferred to later seasons, but it would be extremely messy to sort through. Uh, and of course, we know the lottery itself would change. You'd only have four teams that could win it now because you'd be going back to the 2012 format with just one team being drawn. And we know that teams can only drop or move up a maximum four spots. Ottawa's got two of the picks. There are only four teams that can win it. So especially Ottawa and Detroit get a huge competitive advantage in that lottery. Uh, and Ottawa, you know, it, it's... it's Detroit has a massive advantage because if any team outside that group wins it, automatically the pick's going to go to Detroit. But Ottawa having two picks too, they have a big advantage as well. And I don't think that's going to sit well with so many other teams that I think would have, would have had a chance right, to move up further. Uh, and I, I, I think the NHL in this case, my opinion is they're being short-sighted. They got a little too excited seeing the, the TV ratings for the NFL draft. It was exciting. It was pretty well executed in my opinion. Uh, but you're sort of selling out for that sort of you know, one or two day blip of entertainment that's going to hurt, I think, the league, hurt the competitive balance in the long term. Uh, and I think that they're missing the idea that, you know, we're not going to be able to see normal trades and trades are a big part of what makes the draft exciting. Personally, I think the trades are just as exciting as the picks themselves. Matt, I want to get back to the point you had regarding if the league comes back too quickly. And I, I think that'll just be a judgment call, you know, by every sports league that's in a pause right now. But let's Assume that the, the, the NHL comes back within the next maybe six weeks. I'm throwing out a, a time frame, and you know they're playing, whether it's in the playoffs or the end of the regular season. But all of a sudden, we start to see some players test positive for the virus, and I think that's probably going to happen because the, the more people are going back to work to try and bring some normalcy back to their lives, you're going to see an uptick in positive tests. If you decide to open up the NHL, and you see some players test positive. Do you shut it back down? What does that mean for the league economically? And I guess the second part of that question is, how big of a hit is this going to be for the NHL economically, specifically with some of their teams, and whether or not, not that they're going to survive this, but could be in pretty bad shape for a while? Yeah, I think it's going to be a huge problem if a player gets infected, and I think you would have to absolutely shut everything down immediately because what's the scariest thing we all know about the virus? Asymptomatic. People can be asymptomatic for, what is it, up to at least four days or as many as 14 days, right? 
so if one player is infected, it means it's possible that any other player in the league that's come into any contact or touched any of the same surfaces could be infected. So you have to shut the whole thing down. I'm pretty sure, I mean, obviously I'm no doctor, but I think based on what we've seen so far, that would be the advice you get from medical professionals. Uh, and in terms of, you know, the economic impact for the NHL, they haven't signed their new US TV deal yet. I think they're a league that's still very dependent on gate revenues, especially for the postseason. Uh, so I, I do see the NHL being extremely hard hit, even compared to a league like the NFL, which gets just makes a killing in TV revenue. Uh, the NHL would be pretty devastated. Uh, and I think where we're going to see the quickest and most obvious impact is going to be in the salary cap. And it's funny, Tampa Bay, Tampa Bay Lightning is going to be one of the teams that's most adversely affected by this because we know they like to live dangerously. They like to live close to that cap, as many perennial contender teams do. And you've got guys like Sergeyev, Anthony Sorelli, the RFAs. And if this salary cap before, you know, we had the projection 84 to 88 million, that's definitely off the table now. Now we're looking at maintaining the cap, 81 and a half million, looking like a pipe dream. More likely, the cap's going to be rolled back, I think, based on how much money the league has lost. And that's going to be disastrous for a lot of teams. It's going to lead to a lot more player movement. And I have to think that in this scenario, the league would have to bring back compliance buyouts. Otherwise, teams are just going to be bleeding players, unable to sign guys. Matt, the thought popped in my head as uh, you, you were answering the question there. Uh, because the NHL is so reliant or more so reliant on gate revenue than uh, some of the other uh, pro sports leagues in North, North America, do they have to be more careful than other leagues in terms of their timeline? Uh, I know there's uh, we've talked on this show a lot about the race to be the first one back to kind of grab that attention of the North American sports fan um, here. But because the league is so gate-reliant, uh, um, do they have to be more careful that when they come back, they do it the right way? And and uh, you know, I, I, I've heard that this is a big reason why December has been floated around because at least maybe by December you have a better chance to potentially have fans back in the stands, at least in some capacity. So in that aspect, how careful does the NHL have to be in making this determination when's the right time to come back? I think you have to be extremely careful, and I think your point is bang on. I think the NHL is more vulnerable than most leagues because of the fact it depends on those crowds. And, it's an, again, it's an indoor sport. It's different than, I think, even a baseball crowd or a football crowd where at least you're outside in open air. And to me, I think the, what the NHL has to think about doing, uh, if, you know, in the short term, if you return and you have empty arenas, you have to pivot and find a way to alter your TV approach. And you have to kind of try and mimic, you know, what's one thing that we know about the NFL? You can access almost every game. So many games are nationally televised every week. Uh, I know it's different because, you know, it's t other than primetime games on Sundays, but the NHL, you know, you get your NBC Wednesday night rivalry games, but you don't get too many that are sort of appointment viewing for everyone. And I think the NHL would have to look into that. NBC would have to look into finding a way to nationally televise far more games and try and generate much bigger revenues. It's the only thing you can do, I, I believe, to kind of counteract the idea you're gonna, that you're going to have so few fans or no fans in, in your stands. Matt Lurkin from the Hockey News joins us here on the Power Lunch. Matt, how much does play suffer? Again, I'm asking you to project. I understand that. But based off of your opinion, how much does play suffer if there are no fans in the stands, particularly playoff time? I think it's one thing to come back and say we're going to be playing in the playoffs, no doubt about it. I think everybody will be pumped. They're professionals. They get paid to do a job. But they're also performers. And if you don't have a crowd cheering you on, particularly during the playoff time, 
I've got to think the play might not be as great as we would have hoped. Am I overstating the importance of a crowd? And what do you think that looks like from a playing point of view? I don't think you're overstating it. And Greggy, you're giving me a chance to plug myself here. A story that I'm working on right now is about just that. It's going to be coming in the next issue of the Hockey News about what these games without fans are going to look like. I'm going to be talking to some players about it. And these are the questions I'm going to be asking, including later today. I got some interviews booked already, my man, because I want to know the same thing. Uh, I do. So think you're saying it was a great question? From a, oh, sorry, go ahead, no, Greg. No, no, no self-promotion, Greg. Sorry, you're not allowed. <laughs> I was going to say, so you're saying it was a great question? <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I think it's going to be interesting. It's a double-edged sword, and I'm going to be obviously finding out more about this when I ask my questions later. Uh, you're going to have the impact of maybe games are going to feel like shinny. They're going to feel like practices because you don't have that crowd noise and I'm wondering, you know, will will teams, will arenas decide to keep pumping music in or even artificial crowd noise to create that atmosphere? I think also strategically there are some pitfalls. If you're calling a timeout with the goalie pulled, now can the other team hear you while you're talking? If the benches are side by side, there's nobody else in the arena. Do you have to whisper? Do you, or, you know, do you have to do you have to consider if you're going to strategize going to a different part of the rink in the middle of a game? Who knows, right? There are so many different right. scenarios to think about. Uh, I think that are all related to sound. On the other hand, uh, if we're looking at the glass as half full, maybe that lights a different fire. If you look at you know the way players like to trash talk and, and chirp each other on the ice, now you can hear everything. Now you can jaw each other. The entire teams can hear what they're saying to each other all game long. You're not necessarily being drowned up by deafening crowd noise. And maybe that lights more of a personal fire between teams and you get the kind of the sense of, of, of a pickup game, a shinny game that gets really competitive. So I don't know which side will win out. Uh, but it's it's very interesting to think about. And I'm also wondering, just from a competitive standpoint, uh, it's less about, you know, the fans in the stands, but just this layoff. We've seen it with guys like William Nealander, you know, in Toronto last year. When players have long layoffs and they're not playing competitive hockey, it takes a long time to get the legs back. So I'm not as optimistic as many people that the layoff is going to bring people back fresh. I think it's going to lead to a lot of uh, heavy legs. Oh, there's no doubt. There's no doubt it, it it could be some sloppy hockey, which can make for some very entertaining hockey. You want to talk about coaches that don't like turnovers now. Wait till you get into this situation where the timing is off and the and trying to find that right pass is off and it gets picked off and goes the other way. That's what I'm saying. It could be nineteen eighties playoff hockey. Uh and it could be a lot of fun. Um Matt, we've heard uh I know um uh, John Chaika in, in Arizona has talked about he's on this conference call weekly with uh, commissioners and, and, and personnel from other sports leagues, even in Europe, uh, the Bundesliga and, and the British Premier League and all that. How much does North America have to keep an eye on what's going on? The Korean Baseball League started back up. Uh, the Bundesliga is supposed to start back up in a couple of weeks. They got the go-ahead from the German government today to get that. Um, how much are they? Ha- how much do they have to monitor how those leagues are handling it and maybe use those as models for whatever the NHL or Major League Baseball or any of the leagues here will look at? Oh, I think it's it's crucial, and it applies not just to sports. It applies to how every nation is approached handling the virus because you look at you know Wuhan was first and then you look at South Korea how did they handle how did they flatten the curve what happened in Italy how do you avoid being what another Italy or France or Spain and I think it's the same thing looking at how every major sport is resuming activity in Europe I think the only difference is if you look at the, the most popular sports in Europe most of them are sports that are played outdoors so I think you know a, an NFL team or, or a baseball team can gain more from looking at what those nations are doing than an NHL team you know you do have of course eventually you might see uh, you know, KHL games resuming, and uh, although their season, I guess, is in a different juncture than everyone else's, but you'll see some of the Euro leagues 
resuming and they can provide a model for sure. Uh, but I, I would say that the other sports have more to gain. Regardless, though, I, I don't think there's any doubt. You have to just look at the rest of the world and kind of follow the order of who got the outbreak first. And you look at what they did well, you look at what they did wrong, and you try and learn from that. Matt, I'm going to step out of the hockey world for a second and focus on just everyday life here. I mean, it's a, we're in the, the field of communications, whether it's online, whether it's prints, whether it's broadcasting. And I think this pause in sports, really in everyday life, uh, has affected that. And whether it's newspapers, magazines, radio, I think like sports, businesses need to find ways to be creative with how their content gets read or listened to and how accessible it is. I know we've all been affected by this pause in some way. Do you see those industries having to rebrand or just be um, different in how they get their material out there, kind of like the NHL maybe thinking outside the box to bring in fans after this pause is lifted? Do you feel like our business has to do the same thing? And what are some of the ways you think that can be done? I think you absolutely have to adapt and survive. And I think I – think- you know, especially in the early days when the shutdown was starting, there was a big panic, I think, in our industry of, oh, my God, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to report about? We're going to lose a lot of subscribers. We're going to lose a lot of business. But to me, uh, I think, you know, so many, uh, if, if we use hockey as the example, so many publications survived an entire year without hockey, the 0405 lockout. Uh, and I think if we can get through that, we can get through this. Uh, there are a lot of inspiring stories to tell, and some of them are not about hockey. And again, we'll be, we'll be doing this in our upcoming issue, kind of finding some feel-good stories, some uplifting stories of people who have overcome a lot uh, as a result of COVID or just in life in general. So I do think you think outside the box and maybe you think of it as an opportunity to tell stories that you might not have had time to tell during the grind of regular seasons. You can kind of branch out further and kind of overturn rocks and, and, and find people or teams or places that don't get as much attention as they normally would. And you think of it as a silver lining, a chance to tell those stories a lot more. And I think also, you know, it's it's our duty to report, of course, on how the league is dealing with the virus and all the repercussions, but it's also an opportunity to mix in some fun. And that's the thing I believe in personally a lot. Uh, if you look at anyone's Twitter feed, it's hard every day right now, so it's okay. If you, as an example, you know, I'm doing 2022 imaginary Olympic rosters. We know, of course, NHLers probably are not going to go, but why do I do it? Because it's fun. And I think that it's okay to have sort of some fun hypothetical hockey discussions because it, it gets people excited. It distracts them. It brings them a little bit of joy. Just talking about something that comes from the love of the game. Uh, so it's a, it's a balance of that. It's finding stories that wouldn't get to be told normally. It's doing your duty as news breakers, of course, and it's injecting a bit of fun into the coverage, in my opinion. Matt, last question from me. Uh, we heard some comments from uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, uh, I think it was late last week, where he said that anybody coming across the Canadian border, as long as the, the border is sort of shut off, are still subject to quarantine situations. And that would include, as these scenarios we've talked about, NHL players, if Toronto or Edmonton might end up being one of these uh, locales where they host um, you know these these games in in one spot. How how much of a factor is that, and how much have we not talked maybe enough about that possibility? Because there are you know nine franchises uh, in Canada and twenty one down or twenty two down here in North uh, in the uh, in the U S. I think it's a big reason why we've had these ideas of localized you know venues per division or per conference. Uh, 
And I think it, that would combat the problem a bit, especially if teams need to have their, their training camps, exhibition schedule. I think because of this rule, if, let's say, for example, the Atlanta teams are all going to play in Toronto, it just means that camps, maybe every team, they do their quarantine here, so you have your camp here, uh, and you get that out of the way. Uh, so I personally think it's not going to be a huge problem because of the fact that uh, the plan is already being discussed to have the local, you know, certain sites hosting a lot of games for one division or all games for one division. It just means, in my opinion, players would have to probably leave their families earlier and do the quarantine at the same time that they're getting into game shape. Matt, before we let you go, what's the first thing you're going to do once you're allowed to get out there and <laughs> go shopping or go to a restaurant? Is it, uh, you know, get a, a good bite to eat, go to a movie? What, what are you uh, dying to do that you can't right now? Well, I, I mean, go to a hockey game would be great, of course, but uh, you know, I'm, I'm a... <laughs> An enormous movie buff, so that's one of the things I miss the most, absolutely. Uh, and the parent, the parent in me is excited for to see for my school. daughter get to go back to school. And of course, the reason <laughs> is not because I want to sleep. Of course not. No, the reason is because I want her to uh, get to be social and see other kids again. That's definitely it. I promise. <laughs> Another good answer. It's a good answer. <laughs> well, Matt, um, Thank you, buddy, for coming on. We always appreciate it. We'll have to do it again once play resumes. And uh, congrats on the newest edition. Excited yes. for the Larkin family, buddy. Oh, thank you guys so much. Thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully the next time we talk, it'll be about hockey, true hockey yes. being played on ice. Absolutely. Thank Can't you, buddy. Be it. safe out Thanks, there. Thanks, Matt. Talk be to you well. soon. Thanks, guys. All right, Matt Larkin joining us there. And Covered a lot of ground there. Good stuff. We did, yeah. Went back and forth. You know, I I was sitting here thinking as we were uh, uh, doing the interview there that, boy, time just continues to fly by on these shows. And I, I remember thinking back in March when we started this going, how in the hell are we going to pull this off every day? And now I turn around and look, and we've only got 10 minutes left in the show because the conversation's been just that good. No. Well. I like to think it's been. Hopefully our audience agrees and uh, weigh in at Greg Linelli, at Eric Erlinson, underscore Erlinson, I should say, at Bolts Radio. All right, I teased it at the beginning. I want to get into it when we come back. Disneyland is reopening. It's not in the States. We'll tell you where. And uh, a few other little tidbits of information as we uh, close up the show. He's Eric Erlinson. I am Greg Linelli. It's the Power Lunch on Lightning Power Play. An hour of hockey talk to get you through social distancing. This is Power Lunch with Greg Linelli and Eric Erlinson on Lightning Power Play. All right, welcome back to Power Lunch here on Lightning Power Play. Eric Erlinson alongside Greg Linelli. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Matt Larkin. And uh, he did mention uh, it's time to have some fun at some point during this as well. It's, it's never a good idea. And speaking of fun... Lightning Turbo Trivia returns tonight at 6 p.m. It's presented yes. by World of Beer. Play along via the interactive games link in the Tampa Bay Lightning app or via boltstrivia.com and catch host Greg Wolf with a second screen experience live stream on the Tampa Bay Lightning Facebook page. First prize tonight is a $100 gift card to World of Beer. So that's Lightning Turbo Trivia tonight at 6 p.m. with Greg Wolf in um, Greg, we were discussing, or you had kind of teased to the Disneyland reopening, yes. and, and it is a tease because you know how big I a Disney a fan I am. I know you guys go to Disney I when know. you can, especially Animal Kingdom, so it's not Ooh. in Orlando. No, but, it is not. 
And uh, I'm curious what you think about this. This is coming from CNBC today. It says Disney will reopen its Shanghai theme park on May 11th. Now, the company reported this on their earnings conference call on Tuesday. It's been closed since January 25th. Now, Disney reopened Disneytown, Wishing Star Park, and the Disneyland Hotel in Shanghai in March. This is going to be the first Disney theme park to reopen after being closed due to the coronavirus pandemic. The article goes on to say, this is interesting, the park has 80,000 visitors per day. This is uh, coming from their CEO, but the government has mandated they operate at 30% capacity or 24,000 visitors. Uh, the CEO would go on to say the park would initially open operating well below that capacity and ramp up to reach the 30% cap over several weeks. So no doubt the economy um, takes a hit when, or Disney takes a hit when the economy is shut down like that. Uh, revenues uh, crippled by 10% during the second quarter, according to uh, their CEO of Disney. So interesting that it's Shanghai -y that is opening up and, uh, you know, the, the coronavirus obviously came from China, not in specifically Shanghai, but it, it's, it, I just find that interesting that it's opening up there. And when it will reopen here in the States, I have no idea, but I think it's going to be interesting because my wife and I talk about this a great deal because we do have passes, as do you. It's a great way to get out of the house, particularly during this time. But she made the point to me the other day that she wonders if people who – have maybe the higher passes or who have booked their stay and have spent a good amount of money planning this out will get preferential treatment over anybody else who has certain passes because, again, this is a revenue game, and uh, certainly Disney's no, uh, no slouch when it comes to trying to bring in money, but uh, it'll be interesting to see who gets an opportunity to go to Disney first when they eventually do reopen. Yeah, just as we talked about with like the Bundesliga and Korean baseball sort of being the ones to set a little bit of a model for what's going to take place with North American sports, same way here, right? Shanghai uh, Disneyland is obviously a big, um, you know, uh, place to go there. I mean, 80,000 people a day. I'm sure the one here in Orlando probably does a lot more than that just because they have the four parks and, and how much it means to tourism. Uh, so they're going to kind of be the model to see how this opens. And I've seen some pictures of, you know, lines they've had or uh, tape that they've had to put down for, you know, the social distancing marker if you're in a queue line to get onto a ride. And, um, you know, and, and look, I, I told you, we, we actually have reservations for July to spend, I think, five nights over there uh, with our Disney Vacation Club. So Disney gets a lot of our money uh, per year as it is. Uh, so that is going to be very interesting, and uh, I am curious, and I did. I don't know if you did, Greg, but uh, Disney is now selling masks, which I did purchase, and they're actually taking the proceeds from those masks to make more masks for underdeveloped uh, or under, um, uh, you know, basically poverty areas where people can maybe can't afford masks, so mm -hmm. they're going to take the money to do that. So I did buy my mask. Uh, so I would definitely wear a mask the next time I go to Disney, whenever that happens to be. I, I don't know where you would stand on that possibility. Because I know you, you guys used to go, you know, maybe once a month or at least to get over there yeah. and just kind of get away. When we were in Lakeland, for sure. I mean, that was that was the beauty of, of our location. Now we live in Odessa, so it's obviously a little further distance. But I think it's still something we're going to take advantage of now, especially, too, with uh, Alaria. Uh, in the picture along with Gianna. So I think it's 
we can't wait to go. Whether I would wear a mask, I mean, I, I think, look, we're wearing a mask to go to Publix, um, yep. you know, when we go shopping. So my, my gut tells me we would. Although I tell you, you wear that mask for more than an hour, you can appreciate the, the medical workers who are doing this, you know, at times doing a 12 hour shift. I mean, you're feeling it. It is very uncomfortable. There's no question about it. So uh, I have faith in people that while I think Disney's going to instruct, as well other businesses, once everybody does reopen, of like where to stand and, you know, the social distancing, I think will be part of our community, our culture for a while. I think the American people are going to be smart enough to pick up on that. You're always going to have a few people that don't, but I think people will get it. And I think it's going to be interesting to see when entertainment businesses like Disney open up to full capacity and how long they stay with 20%, 30%. Cause I got to be honest with you, you know, Disney open at 30% while it stinks for them from a business perspective, that's music to a lot of people's ears, no pun intended, because I, I think one of the complaints at Disney is just too crowded, way too crowded. Yeah. And <laughs> you go 30% capacity, a lot of people are going to enjoy themselves. Well, and then, and then, because I've had this conversation with my wife as we've talked yeah. about this, you know, if okay, you're limited to thirty percent capacity. Who are those thirty percent? If it's you exactly show it. up at the park at noon and they're at capacity, what are you going to do? So I think, Is, I think it's a great. You've had like three great questions today. This is amazing. This is not man, that you don't, but you I mean, I'm, okay I'm on record as giving you a great question. Um, <laughs> I think, I think people who have made reservations, who have booked hotels, who it looks like you have spent a ton of money or have the, what's the highest pass? Gold pass? That's platinum. Um, it's platinum pass. So I think, I think those people actually get preferential treatment. I do, because I think this is a business just like anything else. I think the people that have spent the most money and that have especially booked hotels, I think they get preferential treatment. And I know like for us, and I'm sure it's, it's this way for a lot of people, you know, with our passes, you know, not being able to go during this month, you kind of, get those credited to, towards, you know, whenever the parks does open. Um, I think there are going to be certain blackout dates that people that maybe haven't made reservations will be able to go to. But I think Disney will work that out. They'll figure it out. But I think the people who have things reserved and who have spent money going to a hotel and have the platinum passes, I think those people are going to go first. I do. That's just my opinion, but I think that's how it's going to play out. Yeah, it, it's going to be hard, too. Uh, it's going to be hard because, you know, someone like yourself, you just decided, hey, let's just go on Sunday, right? Like, what's, what is going to happen? You got to see if it's when, blacked out. When you show up you know? at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, are they at capacity? I mean, are, there, are you going to have virtual queue lines instead of actual queue lines? You know, well, we already you better see make that. sure the app works because now you might oh, well. have to book when yeah. you're going to go. Well, you already kind of do it. You know? I, I, you know, like we rode the new Star Wars ride. Um, we were fortunate to get onto it. You you had to yeah. be in the park when the time it opened to get your reservation, and we didn't even go back until like four o'clock in the afternoon. But it it was a reservation, but that was just to get into a queue line. So that wasn't necessarily to get on the ride. That was yeah. just actually to get into line for the Rise of the Resistance ride over there. So up on the priority list, yeah, especially since we do loyal. have reservations in July. Yeah, I think I think you may be okay. I'll talk to um, their CEO. Maybe we can get them on the call and ask do that. about these questions and. Who the heck the knows? important hard-hitting questions. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, and the last story I wanted to break, and this just, I think, speaks to where we are economically, E, and we always like to sprinkle this in a bit because there are people out there that are listening to the show that are small business owners that are trying to figure this out just like we all are. According to the New York Times, more than 40% of the nation's 30 million small businesses could could close permanently 
in the next six months. Estimates place the number of small businesses in the U.S. at between 25 million and 27 million, although many of these are micro companies and they're run by just one person. The statistics are pretty consistent in showing that 60 to 80 percent of all U.S. jobs are created by small businesses, and everybody's feeling the effects of this. But small businesses, it's the lifeblood of the American economy, and these people clearly are hurting, and you're already reading stories about um, you know, somebody who owns a, a small business, a hair salon, who opened it up because they were broke and they were arrested. Um, it's funny because my wife um, had a, uh, an appointment with her hairstylist, and obviously that had to be shut down. But, you know, she was talking to her, her stylist, and, um, you know, he was saying, look, we're, we're some of the most hygiene responsible people out there. I mean, that's one of the things that they're taught going through that process, that trade, is, is to be clean as possible. You have to because your, your tools are what you use to cut people's hair. And there are people out there who are, are willing to, you know, say, listen, I'm an essential employee. Uh, I don't care what the government says. I need to feed my family. I can't wait because they're not getting that stimulus relief yet. That's still being worked through. And it's just a crazy time. But I think it speaks to there are a lot of people out there who they're on the clock. And, you know, the sooner they can open up business in a, in a responsible way, again, I want to emphasize that in a, in a responsible way, I think obviously the better for them. Yeah, and I'll, I'll relay a quick story. Uh, I do know of a particular haircutting establishment, and I know somebody who happened to drive by there the other day and saw the door open, so they stopped by and said, are you guys open? Uh, well, no, but if people are coming here and they want their haircut, we're not going to stop them. We'll cut their hair. Now, we're not officially open for business, but yeah. so, you know, there is that aspect, and uh, so I know that that did happen. Um, at least uh, on a personal level, I do know somebody that did encounter that situation. And uh, before we sign off, we would be remiss if we did not recognize that today is a National Nurse Appreciation Day. Uh, there's a, a nice little social media thing going on that people who have sports jerseys are taping or putting the name of a nurse or a doctor or somebody in the medical field that they know on the back of their jerseys and sharing it on social media. So if you have an opportunity, get involved in that. Uh, I think we should appreciate nurses more than ever for sure and doctors and everybody involved uh, with the medical field. Um, so, again, it's National Nurses Appreciation Day, and I can't say we, we have to say we can't for thank sure. our nurses enough for what it is they've been doing the last three months or so on the uh, front lines. With the situation. Yeah, on the front lines, especially the people in um, New York City. I mean, where where they were hit the hardest. Uh, and wasn't it National Teachers Appreciation Day the other day? Yesterday. This is this is Teacher Appreciation Week. Yeah. So Teacher Appreciation Week. Yesterday was your wife's actual teacher. teacher Appreciation Day. Yep. Appreciate what they do. Um, this is a confusing time, I think, for a lot of teachers having to go online and teach, especially if you have younger kids. Um, we appreciate what they do. I know I come from a family of teachers. E, so do you. Um, it's a, it's a tough job, and it's tougher under these circumstances. So we thank yep, you. Very underappreciated job. Yes, we appreciate you as well. We appreciate you for listening. Thank you very much. We'll be with you again tomorrow, noon to 1. E, do we have anybody booked? I know we had some feelers out. Are we still it, nothing working? yet. We're efforting uh, is the, the still, radio terminology. I'm still working on a very special guest uh, who I'm waiting to hear back from. Uh, we'll go with Plan B if we don't hear back here on uh, the very near future. But um, whoever comes on tomorrow will be It'll a be great fun. guest. Yeah, it'll be fun. And um, you'll join me tomorrow for Game 5 on 95.3 WDE and Lightning Power Play. 
Clincher. Uh, the, the 2016 playoff run for the Lightning. So make yeah, sure you stay tuned for that. Ian and I always have fun taking your questions and talking about the, the latest topics there. Thanks to Steve Versnick, as always. And again, thanks to you for listening. He is Eric Erlinson. I am Greg Linelli. Great to be with you again today. We'll do it again tomorrow, noon to one, right here on Lightning Power Play.